0: There was an all-hands meeting going on, and most of the people on my team were sitting in the situation room, and the situation room happens to have all these monitors around it with the dashboards. We don't usually use them for anything, right? Because no one – like it's just cycling through those dashboards, and he sees these like – those like errors. like, wait, those are bad, right? Now I'm not in that room. So I'm on call. I'm not in that room. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be like remote. Like I want to go actually to where the, the all hands meeting is, right? So I, I'm in the all hands meeting. They're watching the all hands meeting from the situation room. The, my, my teammate sees this. Paige is on call, who's me. So they're watching. They're watching me stand up. They're watching me look at my phone, stand up and then come, come back to the situation room.
1: Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hello,
2: everyone. This is Guang. Our guest for this episode is Lauren Hochstein. Lauren is a senior software engineer at Netflix, where he worked on chaos and reliability engineering and is now on the managed delivery team. In this chat, we hear about how Lauren got into chaos engineering. His favorite incident story, what engineers can gain from writing better, and why some metrics might not be as useful as you think. Please enjoy this lively and educational conversation with Lauren Hoxstein. Awesome. Well, uh, Lauren, welcome to the show. All right, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So uh, starting from kind of the beginning, um, so you got a PhD from uh, University of Maryland in computer science. And then after that, you actually went to academia and spent some time working as a professor before uh, coming to the dark side and then moving into industry. Um, what was that transition like?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I really thought I wanted to be a professor. Uh, it's funny, when I was a kid, so my, my dad's a professor. Um, and my mom is a an elementary school teacher and I was a kid. I was like, no, I'm not doing it I'm not gonna be an educator. I'm not gonna be a professor. I'm gonna do my own thing I got an, a degree in computer engineering. I got a job right at a school It's working for a little startup uh, in Montreal and then I was like wait a minute I actually do want to be a professor and so like <laughs> after like 18 months uh, I moved to the US and I you know went to grad school uh, got my PhD uh, applied to like forty different schools to get a, a job as a professor. I got two interviews, um, two offers, and I got it. And I was not happy there. I was very, very stressed out uh, when I got got that job. Uh, wait, wait. I was
2: worried. I think, I think this will be a good advice for my parents in terms of how they could have convinced <laughs> me to go to medical school. So wait, so what did uh, what did it change? Like, why why did you change your mind that you decided? Hey, maybe like uh, professorship is actually what I want. Like at the earlier time,
0: yeah. I uh, I really like school. Uh, I really liked learning stuff. I liked research. Uh, I was just interested in it. I loved. I actually started out um, my PhD program in electrical engineering, and then I switched to computer science uh, because I really liked signal processing. Um, I just love that stuff. I I really enjoyed college. I mean, I, it's really weird, but when I retire, I'm probably going to spend time just going back to school and just taking classes um, because I just really <laughs> like that. Uh, and so when you really like, you know, academic stuff, academia is a natural place to think you want to spend your time. Uh, and that's that's what sort of flipped me. I see. I see.
2: What, what made it stressful? Was it the, the, the teaching aspect or like having to like do
0: the grants, you know, the more uh, procedural stuff? Sure, the, the grants was probably the thing that was most stressful to me. Teaching was stressful. I mean, I'm I'm an introvert and you have to stand up there and you know do a lecture all, all the time. <laughs> but you get used to that in academia. Like you can't even get through grad school if you can't, you know, get up in front of people and, and, and speak. Um, I learned how to stay like you know one lecture ahead of the students <laughs> in my first when I first <laughs> created classes, uh, which was interesting. Um, but one of the challenges, I, I like education, although I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of lecturing. But uh, so what was frustrating to me was the, the grant stuff. Um, it's it's very hard to get grants. The accept, accept rate for the NSF, at least at the time, was like 4%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not in a particularly hot area. My research area is empirical software engineering. So it's like actually studying software engineers as they do work. Um, and I was stressed out all the time about it and I couldn't spend as much time on like teaching stuff as I wanted to because I had to spend time on, on research stuff. Uh, and I just wasn't like enjoying the work because I was constantly worried that like I wouldn't get grants, which would mean I wouldn't get tenure, which would mean that I would like basically be fired from my job and have to go somewhere else after six years. Um, I had just had a, my first child was born, right, when I moved to, to Nebraska. We didn't know anyone out there. My wife and I were like, we're like city, like, we're, we're coasters, right? So we were both from the East Coast, now on the West Coast. Uh, Midwest is not, like, culturally is <laughs> not, not a good fit for us. We didn't know anybody. Uh, so, like, there's a, a confluence. It's not, it's never one thing, right? So there's, like, a confluence of, of, of different factors. And in the end, I was like, well, like, what am I doing here if I don't really like this work? Like, it's, I, I I'm fortunate enough to be in a field where there actually is industry work, right? If I had gotten a a PhD in like, so my brother has a PhD in philosophy and he's a philosophy professor now. Um, And you know, there's not that much else you can do with a a PhD in (laughs) philosophy, but with like, at least in in software you can go out uh, into industry. Uh, And so at some point I'm just like, what am I doing here? I'm not happy. And I started to look into other options and I slowly transitioned from academia uh, into industry. Interesting. like, did
2: you have to, like, do the whole, like, the how to crack the, the coding interview book or was that – because you already had, like, a really solid <laughs> – you already had a very solid background, right? So – but what was that prep like, I guess?
0: I don't know if the book was out at that point. So we're talking about 2008. I don't know if the crack and coding interview book had been published yet. I – applied to Google. I could not get through the tech screen. Uh, I remember in a Google doc doing programming and doing terribly. Like I didn't do that much coding when I was a professor. And I certainly uh, was not practiced at doing like live coding kind of stuff. Um, and so the first job I got out of when I left um, the university, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, I went to a research lab. And, and there's, so there's this whole world of these research lab things that people don't know about unless they're in academia, where they're sort of attached to universities, but the people who work there are not, like, not professors, they're not faculty, they're staff, and they're typically funded through the the research grants that, or contracts that that research lab, um, is getting money for. So I, when I was a PhD student, I was on a, a funded my advisor had a f- project funded that was paying for my PhD. Um and there's a whole bunch of other organizations that had funding. It was like from DARPA, and there's like a whole bunch of other people involved. And one of these organizations is called I it was called ISI, it's still called ISI, uh, the Information Sciences Institute. It's a research lab out of University of Southern California. Um most people have not heard of it, but like that's where DNS was invented. So they had a you know big role in the early early internet. Uh, I never heard of it ex- until I was a PhD student and then when I was looking around was like, oh, I heard of this ISI thing Why don't I apply there? So I applied there uh, Because it was more of an academic-y place that hires PhDs. I did not have to go through a code screen It was more like a, an academic job interview where you go and give a talk, right? A job talk. That's the difference, right? <laughs> academic. So academia, <laughs> I would say the work much more stressful, but the interviewing much easier <laughs> because by the time by the time you get to the interview process, your odds of getting in are very good. It's basically just if there's someone else in the pipeline who's, you know, a little better than you, that's it. Whereas in industry it's like, we don't know whether you're any good or not, because we don't have any like bar in advance. Maybe if we hired you from another fan company, but even then, like even when we hire people from fan companies, we still make them jump through these hoops. Uh so it's it's much less stressful to to apply to uh you know an academic place. Um and so I did a job talk. I got a job there. Uh I my my title, I love this, was Computer Scientist. So I, you know, I have a PhD in computer science, I have worked literally as a computer scientist. I still could not tell you what computer science is, <laughs> like how to define it, but I'm very well credentialed to, to talk about it. Um, and so that that ISI, so I worked there for a while, and then my boss and Skip Level, they left to form a startup and I left and joined them. And since they knew me already, I did not have to tech screen, uh, right? I just got there. Um, and then um, I don't know if you want me to keep going, but basically, <laughs> then I was, was working there. It was a start. It was a startup, um, and um, I was working there during the government shutdown that happened. I don't know if you remember that, but this was like this is in DC a while ago. We were funded through government contracts, and my paycheck started getting later and later. And my wife was like, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> we, we got to eat here. <laughs> uh, and, and so I so I left, and I got a job. Ironically through my brother-in-law, who was uh, a VP at Sengrid at the time. So I was working, uh, he was running Sengrid Labs, which was like a little, you know, piece of Sengrid that was doing like new product development. So we moved to Rhode Island. Um and I once again I and I did have to go through a text screen. I did have to go through the regular, you know, process to get a job there. Uh and I lucked out because the problem I practiced the night before that person happened to ask me in the text screen. Oh, and I, wow. I told him like it was like the the shuffle problem. Have you ever seen that one, right? Like how do you do a perfect shuffle of a of a deck of cards? And there's a there's a well-known algorithm. And I'm like, I told him, like, you know, I've just practiced this. Are you sure you want me to do this? He said, Yeah. I said, okay. So <laughs> you know, nice. and I just blew the problem away <laughs> because I just done it.
1: Uh Did any of the process of interviewing ever make you feel that, uh, oh, maybe I should go back to academia and not go to tech because like <laughs> you have to go through all these hoops to just go through the interview?
0: You know, I, I found the interview frustrating. I still do. I still, I'm, I'm like a, not a big fan of the way tech interviews are done, mm-hmm. but I, I like the work of, of industry more. So like, I really don't like... How to get in there, but I really enjoy the, one of the things I like a lot more in industry is the team aspect. Like when you're in academia, you're sort of like an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you have some people who report to you grad students, but really you're, you're out to make a name for yourself. Um, and so you're on your own, you're, you're, the incentives are all for you to do like individual work. Mm -hmm. Whereas in industry, you're always working on some kind of product together with a team, right? It's not about you as an individual. It's about like, you're, you're working together for something to build something. And I, I like that. I work much better in that kind of environment. Uh, so like, while I, I still am very academically minded, like I have a, you know, I run like the paper reading group at Netflix. Um, I, I still like the the day-to-day work in, in industry a lot more. Nice, nice. And then that's sort of, I guess, right after that, that's how you got into Netflix
2: or what drew you to Netflix?
0: Yeah. um, Well, I was was at Syngrid Labs and, you know, uh, we'd actually moved to Rhode Island for family reasons. And then those reasons were, my my wife is from Rhode Island. um, And then those reasons were no longer relevant. There was nothing keeping us there anymore. Uh, My wife actually does not Really like living in Rhode Island, even though she's from there, or maybe because she's from there. Um, I was fine with it, but I had no particular attachment to to Rhode Island. Our kids are getting a little bit older. I never worked in in Silicon Valley, uh, and I said, you know, this is our really our last chance to try something like that. This was before the days you could, you know, work remotely for for any company like you can now. And so I just basically applied to all websites to different fan companies. I didn't have any contacts really at any of them. Um, and so, you know, I applied to all the fangs. I, I failed the tech screens at, at Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I, uh. I got an offer from Amazon. Uh, Google kind of screwed up the process with me. I got I got through the tech screen, but they never managed to schedule an on-site because the recruiter wasn't that good, I think. Um, and net and Netflix um, had an opening on the chaos team, and I thought like that's really cool. I'd heard of Chaos Monkey, uh, and that sounded really exciting to me. And I, I got an offer there, and I I didn't even want to wait to see what would happen with Google. I was just like, yeah, like I, uh, Amazon. I had heard like you know they use blood to power the machine, so I was a little afraid of, of going to Amazon. Um, and, and so, yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, sorry. No
2: sorry. Anyways, um, so the, uh, a couple episodes back, uh, we actually spoke with uh, Tammy from Gremlin, and we were actually talking about how cool the Netflix uh, Chaos Kong, I think that was the demo for, at uh, AWS ReInvent one year. And, uh, so yeah, I like, I think that's been the uh, inspiration to, you know, a lot of us. And I was curious, like, so f- for you guys, you know, y'all been doing resilience engineering for a lot, for a long time and Netflix, um, how has that like changed, like evolved over time?
0: Yeah, it, it. Well, it started out with, you know, uh, with the Chaos Monkey stuff. I mean, it's, it's been going on for a really long time, right? So I, I can talk about what happened since I've been there. about So when I got there about six years ago, um, Chaos Monkey was there. Um, the the person who had developed initially had left, and so another team had sort of owned it and wasn't crazy about owning this legacy thing <laughs> that had been, like, updated through open source, but we weren't really using some of the open source stuff in it. Um, the Kong stuff is interesting. That's, like, the traffic failover, um, which now got broken out into a separate team. Um, demand engineering runs, runs all that stuff now. It used to be like traffic and chaos were together. Um, and then, um, there was some more sophisticated fault injection stuff that was developed by the, the guy who started Gremlin, um, Colton Andrus, mm. uh, built in a lot of sort of smarter, uh, fault injection between microservices and Netflix. So basically all the libraries had these, um, had these, li- all the, the apps had these libraries. LinkedIn that like you could say, okay, fail this call between, you know, one service and another. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they would do experiments of what happens if we fail. So there are some non-critical services at Netflix, like the, that are like, they add value to the, to the experience, customer experience, but they're not critical to be able to watch a movie. So for example, the, the bookmark service that remembers where you were when you were last watching something, like if that fails, you, you would not expect the, to prevent you from watching. You just expect it for, you know, a reasonable thing would just start at the beginning again. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, with this um, failure injection framework, we were able to, uh, you know, so surgically fail calls for either like a particular one particular device or for I think like a percentage. Um, and then when I got there, we, they started building a um, an experimentation framework on top of that that was more sophisticated, right? Because like it was really kind of like it was really tricky to do those experiments because if you only injected a little bit of failure. You couldn't really see at the metrics whether you were actually having impact to customers or not. We would basically do a, a chaos experiment and look to see are, are people still able to watch. Right? That was sort of, we have a metric called SPS, which is like a rate of like how how often people are pressing like the start button and they're actually, you know, successfully able to stream a video. So that, that's our like our our KPI, our mm-hmm. top-level metric. If that if that drops, like things are bad. Uh, I mean, it, it sort of goes in a sine wave-ish kind of thing throughout the course of the day because people watch more in the evening than in the morning. But, like, it doesn't move dramatically quickly. Um So if it drops, like, that's our alerts fire. And so during these test experiments, if we would inject some failure, if it was, like, a lot, that's really bad. But, like, a little bit, it was really hard to tell. And so we built – so when I was there, they built a system called CHAP. Um, which is an experimentation platform where you could affect like a very specific subset of traffic, like a small fraction, and watch what happens to only those users. Uh, and so, it was much more fine-grained. We had graphs just on the people who were being affected. We could use sort of traditional, like, experimentation models where you have, like, a treatment and a and a control. Um, I built, like, an auto-stop system, so if it seemed like it – like, it would usually it would run for, like, a while. I don't know, like, 30 minutes or something. But, uh, you know, we could detect in a couple minutes if there's, like, a big drop uh, in the in the treatment group and just stop it. Um, so there's a lot of sophistication that went into doing that kind of – building that kind of experimental platform so we could be a little more sort of surgical – um, but it turned out that like okay, you could run an experiment and you fail this thing, or you added latency here, and there's some impact. Well, now what, right? Like, well, what's the problem? <laughs> like, well, we we don't we don't know. We can't tell you that. And like, is it worth chasing up on that, right? So there's this whole problem of like fault lo- fault localization, which is another whole area which was not what we were built for, right? And that's like the observability. F- you know, movement. I would say that sort of blossomed over the past few years is really focused on that now, right? It's on fault local. Like, where is the problem uh, when something goes wrong? But we didn't have great fault localization tools, and so it was hard to get uptake. We tried to do some automatic stuff, right? So we're gonna we're gonna run a bunch of automatic experiments, but then still, like, okay, something went wrong. What do, what do we do with that? Uh, and, and so we we built some cool tooling, uh, but it ended up being difficult to use that sort of automated tooling in practice because it required a lot of, of interpretation of the data um, to an investigation to see whether there was actually a problem or not. And then like, there's so many different experiments you could run. Uh, so, you know, I left that team, Um, man, it's been about four years now. It was the chaos team. Now they, it's called the resilience team. Uh, and they're doing some other things now. They're doing some more, like, they're not just doing fault injection. They're using that framework to do other things, like, um, canary analysis. They're doing some more sophisticated stuff there. They use it for load testing. So they've sort of built on it to do things other than, than failure testing. Um, so it sort of evolved over time to do different kinds of like sort of infrastructure experimentation rather than just like break things and uh, just inject failure and see whether we can handle it. Um, the chaos monkey stuff is still there, uh, but it doesn't catch that many things because we now know how to, you know, how to build these services to, you know, every so often someone will, you know, do something accidentally stateful that shouldn't be, but most of the time, you know, it's just fine. I'm curious, like for even we were
2: doing like the sub selecting uh, or sub sampling, sort of a specific types of traffic in order to do the injection. Like, was that difficult because like you would need to kind of have the domain expertise to kind of know that okay for this type of errors that we want to inject, it only affects
0: you know this sort of uh, traffic. Was that a thing or it was pretty straightforward? Well. The nice thing about Netflix is we have enough traffic that, like, even if we do a, a small, per- like, let's say I'm, I'm going to fail calls to the, you know, the foo service here, and I'm like randomly sampling at the edge, right? And I don't know if they're actually going to call. Maybe no calls will go from the people who are tagged. So it's, so, so we're like, we're tagging, you know, in a way that we remember who we tagged, you know, a bunch of people to say, okay, you're the ones we're going to inject failure on. They might not end up going there. Um, but usually we have enough. Tra- like we have, there's so much traffic coming in going to all these services that we get enough that we get, you know, statistically significant results. So just because there's just so much stuff coming in, we can be kind of random, like we can random samples like small amounts and it ends up being like a, a decent count of traffic um, that we can get a decent, we can often get a pretty decent signal. And we have a knob, we can turn it up like, oh, we're, there's like nothing coming in here um, to this service uh, in this group. So we can, we can try to, you know, increase the number of people we're sampling um
1: that's pretty neat like one thing but as you were talking about some of the challenges uh with just doing chaos engineering or resilience engineering even at netflix where i think this idea well i I don't know who popularized the idea but like netflix has been doing this for a while it's been a few years where chaos monkey i think was twenty, thirteen, twelve, 12 uh sometime around that uh And even so, like you mentioned, if you don't have the fault localization tools or the observability tools, it's hard to know what to do with the data that you found out or even dig in and say, okay, there's the problem. That's what we need to fix. Uh, There are various orgs today who see this pattern in the industry now where uh, like chaos engineering, for instance, is a thing that people want to do a lot more of. Uh, But from an engineering perspective, it sounds really cool to do. But from a business standpoint, the question comes back to, so how does it add value like if you did this then how are you going to identify what to fix and if you do that how is it going to help the business baseline because do we build stuff or do we break stuff and figure out how to improve it uh so like for 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 folks who are still trying to think about doing chaos engineering do you have any uh like ideas or perspective on how they can go about thinking about this like whether it makes sense to invest right now or build some tooling first
0: yeah. The funny thing is I'm kind of in the other camp at this point. So when I was on the chaos team, uh, <laughs> wh- what would happen is I would look over at like what was happening, like with the actual incidents. Yeah. And I would say, wow, like, that's a lot more interesting, like, the real <laughs> stuff that's happening. That's more interesting than the synthetic stuff where we, you know, do a little thing and, like, we don't know what – like, the big things. Like, those – like, there's a lot there. And, like, every time you look at – every time I looked at those, I was like, wow, I've, like, learned so much about what's going on in the system. Uh, and And, you know, one of the reasons the team name changed from Chaos to Resilience is that, like, Resilience Engineering is traditionally more about, like, if you, you know, look at, like, the academic field, is more about, like, studying – uh, you know, real incidents. And so I wanted to do that. And so I was like, well, why don't we, why don't we, you know, change the, the, the focus of the team, uh, to spend time doing that. And then I ended up leaving the team and moving over to the incident management team. So, like, I, I don't know, like, I, you know, um, I, I don't want to dump on my chaos, <laughs> but like, I, I would say that, like, I, I think you should invest more of your time looking at your real incidents. Like, I, I think you will learn about, I, I, I found it has been a better, ROI because like it's just like it's a lot of engineering effort to build up the tooling around it and then build learning how to I mean there's some value in learning how to like think about through the experiments and stuff but I, I don't know if the ROI is there to be honest with you and like I I, it's one of the reasons I don't not in that space anymore I'm like it's it's a cool thing I'm glad we tried it but like yeah. the real incidents are where it's at like that's, that's the <laughs> stuff where like like you're gonna learn stuff and like they're gonna keep coming like you don't have oh, to yeah, like true. make them make them happen. All right, all right.
2: Moving on to the next topic. Uh, so, so, so you are um, now on now, or uh, you, you were then transitioned to the core team, which I believe stands for core operations and reliability engineering. So that seems a lot more sort of broader and more horizontal in terms of scope than other SRE teams. Like, uh, how 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 did that work?
0: Um, yeah, the um, the chaos slash resilience team and the core team were both in the same org. They were like managed by the same director um so it was and actually it was the same that there was there were two manager gaps it was actually the same manner like the director was managing both teams um and i looked over and i was just sort of like i want to do incident analysis and it doesn't really you know it's not really within the scope of my current team like the the core team is so the core team is a centralized incident management team i think i don't know what it originally stands for every so often they change what the ac what the acronym means i think it's like uh, critical operations and reliability engineering is what it is today. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it first stood for. Um, but they are a centralized incident management team, um, that is also responsible for the follow up, the incident analysis. And I wanted to do the incident analysis. So I moved over there, but like the, the SREs that are on call are the ones that, that do the analysis, at least at the time. So I had to, you know, become like an SRE and go on call. Like I'm not an SRE. I, I, I guess I have like an SRE skill set at this point in my career. Uh, that's never been my title. Um, but I had to, so I, I actually kept my title. I was still, I was like the only senior software engineer on that team when I moved over. There were all, all the other ones were, were SREs, senior SREs. Um, but I had to do the same kind of work. So I, you know, I moved over to that team. So that team doesn't own any services of their own. Um, right. So Netflix is like, you build it, you run it. So each, each of the, Teams that develop the microservices responsible for operating it, but the core team sort of owns the top level like uh, alerts and dashboards. So if like if all of a sudden like uh, you know a lot of people in Canada are not able to you know stream video on their smart TVs, like the alert will go out, like a, a core alert will will go off, and they sort of do coordination um, and incident management, right? And they will, they'll page people in. They're they're pretty adept at like you know tracking through dashboards to figure out, okay, what's the source of this particular, you know, stream of errors that's coming back. Um, they do handle communications, um, you know, with PR and and the rest of the organization. Um, and so that's, that's what they do. So you have a bunch of people who are sitting around sort of ready to do that, that sort of work. Um,
1: that makes sense. Uh, on, on, on the core side, like uh, it's interesting how the team does incident management and analysis centrally. So, from an incident management perspective uh it's i think different companies have different they call them different teams but there is a team where you'll have like an incident commander for instance who will page and page people out kind of make sure the summary goes out to the execs and the stakeholders uh what's interesting is one part of the role that you mentioned is the incident analysis as well so uh since the core team doesn't own a lot of the services that, uh, that they're built by other teams, like what role and how do they play that role in the incident analysis aspect when working with these multiple teams?
0: Well, it, it's changed a little bit over time. I would say, like historically, they've been responsible for like memorialization of the incident. So we use Jira um, <laughs> to track these things. Uh, Same <laughs> at LinkedIn. and, and right? <laughs> I mean it. It checks the boxes, right? Yes. Like it does does what you needed to do. Um, yeah, people have a love hate relationship, but it works out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they're responsible for writing up that that ticket, and and often that that description will be like relatively brief, not like not a huge amount of detail. Uh, they're enough so that someone on the core team who's looking can look and see what the graphs look like, and so they can get some experience with 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 like the particular failure mode. And typically, the the incident commander will organize the, the IR meeting. So there's an incident review meeting. Where they'll bring the, the people involved together. Um, and then often the, the, the teams that are the own individual services will do write-ups, right? So there'll be maybe, there'll be like an open Q and A doc where people will, 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 you know, add questions and answers. Individual teams might do some write-ups either like on their own or contribute to a larger one. Um, so that's typically how it was done. Um, Excuse me what what I wanted to do was I wanted to go in and like talk to a whole bunch of people who were involved and figure out like, okay, like how did the system get into that state uh when the incident was happening like like how did you find out what did you see, what were you thinking right like that's they had not historically been doing that, uh, and they had also had only been looking at um incidents that were like customer impacting right if something happened that was like not a customer impact, I think maybe I would see an email go from some other team that said, Hey, you know, our internal service had some outage here at this point in time, right? It affected internal customers, but not. And I was like, well, what happened there? That seems interesting. Like I want to know, right? The first one that I saw was like, I think a a system that like figures out like what ads to show, like, you know, Netflix doesn't show ads on our service, but we, you know, buy ads to show on the internet. And there, I think there's some service that figures out what ads to show people and it had failed. And so there was a fallback. So like, there was no even impact, but I was like, that's really interesting there. Like, what happened? And I, I talked to them and it was really fascinating to, to see all the different things that had to happen for that failure mode to happen. Um, but that was not in the scope of, of core at the time. Uh, and so, like, I just wanted to, to dig in and, like, no one else was doing it. Uh, and then, like, so I moved over and my, uh, colleague at the time, Nora Jones, who was on the, the core, the, chaos resilience team she moved over with me like a month later to core she was doing um, a master's degree at uh loon university they have like a, a safety science uh degree so she was really into it too um so the two of us moved over um and we you know tried to do some some deeper analysis stuff and we ended up like opening up new positions so we hired uh j paul reed is on our is on that team now he's like a his Uh, like official title i think is applied resilience engineer right and he does not he's not on call like he he is he is able to right that's it that's um i I really like that um he's able to spend all his time doing the analysis he does he's not responsible for being on call uh and like if you read the the literature they're like if you're involved in the incident you're really not supposed to be the one doing the the follow-up stuff because like each person will have a different perspective, and your, your perspective is going to change the way you look at it. Uh, and you need to get each individual person's perspective to really learn as much as you can about, about the incident.
1: Wow. That is that is so fascinating. And it's it's, it's fascinating because uh, it's unique, at least from my personal experience, I mean, at LinkedIn and some of the other folks that I've spoken to. Uh Many times, the person who's on call, or let's say, was involved in the incident itself, is writing up, like, for the lack of a better word, some people call it postmortem docs or the incident reports. For instance, uh, they organize like the timeline and all of these data points. Uh, but it's so interesting, which what you said that the person involved shouldn't be the one necessarily doing the analysis later on because different people have different perspectives. Uh, so I'm curious, like, what kind of things you found in those reports when when they got written by people who weren't directly involved in the incident or is that how it worked
0: yeah what would happen is you would see the world from different people's points of view um, to describe what happened in the in the incident right and and so that was really interesting so like historically what happens is when you like, the the incident, would, the world of the incident would start when the first alert would go off would be how the traditional write-ups would happen. But then, like, when you started talking to people, you would find out that, like, sort of the seeds had been planted sometimes, like, months or years before, right? <laughs> and you see how this that change made sense at the time, and this other change happens over here, which they didn't know about, and these things interact. And and so you – or you find out that, like, this person didn't know something that somebody else knew at the time, or or the opposite. I mean, one of the things that I love about this stuff – is um, watching how experts resolve incidents, right? We talk a lot about, okay, like we don't want to blame people for their mistakes, but like incidents are an opportunity for people to like really do well at like, at, at operating at a very, very difficult situations, right? And there are people, like, in every organization. I mean, Netflix is a great place. I, I love the people there. But, like, every organization, there are some really, really good people. And and the opportunity to, like, watch them work is amazing. And and if you can capture, like, a story of what they saw and, like, how they dealt with the problem uh, in the moment, like, you can learn from that in, in, a, in a way that's sort of similar to how you can learn from your own experience. Uh, and that's one thing I, I've really wanted to capture in these sorts of, of write-ups.
1: Uh, that's that's so true uh we we had ryan underwood on the show in one of the first few episodes and he, he he was on the same team as as me uh he's moved on from linkedin but he was one of those engineers who if there is let's say for example an incident or a bug people would gather around his desk just to shoulder surf and see what he was seeing and the commands that he was using and we've asked him to record his like teamwork sessions or screen sessions and they are still an artifact shared across the team saying okay this is how you <laughs> debug a disk issue when you have disk pressure on a containerized environment uh so i i can, I can completely relate to what you're saying uh but at times we, we also found this challenging to do many times because it's like okay someone's dealing with an incident or they're going through all these things and the first response they have is can i just go fix it and Many times like people go back and do these write-ups where they'll describe exactly what they saw, capture all these artifacts so the rest of the teams can learn. But then time gets in the way, uh, priorities gets in, get in the way. So I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on uh, how how did your teams at Netflix go about like prioritizing this sort of work where it's like, let, let's capture the thing and learn from it instead of uh, not reflecting on it all the time.
0: Yeah, that's why I'm an advocate of, like, actually spending the resources to have someone who's dedicated, whose, like, job it is to go and talk to people, right? Because it's one thing to ask you to go and, like, write up your own experience. Like, that's going to take you a lot of time, right? And and like like you said, so the, the one universal that we all face is that none of us have enough time, right? We are all limited in our resources. And it doesn't matter, like, what kind of company you work at. It doesn't matter where you are in the org chart. like no one has enough time to do the work they have to do, right? <laughs> and so, like, like learning is the first – reflecting is the first thing to go because you can always cut that out, right? Um So, you need to have, like, some upfront investment. So, that's why I, I – but, to, like, to go and sit and talk with someone for, like, half an hour or an hour after an incident, well, like, that's part of the culture anyways, right? Like, we're expected to, like, talk – often there's, like, a – you know, we typically have, like, a meeting, like, a big, you know, IR meeting. But, like, I actually find – I get a lot more out of the one-on-ones, right? And so the one-on-ones will be much more expensive for the person doing all of those. But for the people on the other side who are talking about their experience, it's, it's a meeting, right? you got meeting. I mean, I don't know what your calendar looks yeah, like, right. but I suspect that, like, they're, you Did know, of the size there, of LinkedIn. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right? And so, like, one more meeting gets annoying, but, like, it's not that expensive. Uh, the write-ups are still hard, and you have to get better at them over time. I mean, even people who do this, like, full-time, even me doing it, I, I struggled. Um, I got better over time. Um, but that's why I th- I think you there's a real advantage in like having people dedicated to this because like that is their full time job they have the the cycles devoted to it and so you don't have this problem of well I would love to do this but like I just have too many other competing priorities it's just not the most important thing for my team right now so so I, I can't
1: makes sense so in this case like is it the role for the applied resilience engineer that you mentioned uh, who would go and talk to these teams and gather their perspectives and then like kind of either provide a qualitative analysis of okay this is what this is kind of a pattern that we're seeing over and over again and some of the incidents happening across the site
0: yeah so You know, two things there. One of them is the, you know, going and talking to people and and doing, you know, about specific incidents. And there's always little things happening all the time that, you know, even even with, like, a full-time resilience engineering analyst, like – Paul can't even look at everything, right? Like there's just way too much. But like the great thing yeah. about incidents is if you miss one, there's another one, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like uh so so part of it is looking at like individual ones, and the other part is like you said, like sort of aggregating, right? So, so another thing that Paul does is he has like a risk radar meeting where he actually sort of crowdsources and asks people to provide like what are what are some risks that you're seeing that that we haven't been talking about, and then he has a meeting. And they can pull he pulls from you know the incident write-ups that he's done. Um, or other people have done, and also just solicits feedback. So, like, that's one of the challenges: is how do you aggregate these sort of like weak signals of risks that you're getting from different places? Uh, and, and that's one of the the roles that he plays. Mm,
1: that's so cool. Uh, you you might have written some incident write-ups, or maybe a lot more, depending upon how many incidents. Uh, do Do you have any advice for folks on? how to go about writing uh incident reports i mean e- even though not many companies would have like a full time person to gather this feedback uh but if if someone's writing this incident report themselves like the the elements that they could borrow to to kind of make those more valuable
0: yeah i would say that the the first step right like if you're like okay i want to write better incident reports but i don't i don't know what to do um the the thing that i think is probably easiest and most valuable is like talk one-on-one with the people that were involved and just write separate narratives from each of their perspectives about what they saw about the world. Right. The hard part is like taking those and, you know, combining them together and picking out themes and contributors. That's hard stuff. It takes a lot of time. Um, but like those narratives alone, you're going to get like a ton of stuff out of there. Um, and so just capture just like, and I, I found that like once I started to do that, like, I would, I would interview someone. I would write an individual narrative for each of them. And then I would do the, the combining. Like, even if you just stopped at the individual and I didn't, I didn't actually release the individual narratives because I would, I would sort of do the synthesis write up where I would like sort of switch back and forth within the different perspectives over time, right? To, to get like a, like a one story going. Um, even if you, you didn't, didn't get to that point, if you just had those narratives, like there's just a ton of stuff that's going to come out. And, and one of the challenges is, like whenever you try to abstract, okay, like what's interesting here, right? Different things will be interesting to different people, right? Someone who just got hired at your company um, reading a narrative is gonna take away something completely different than someone who's been there for like six years. Uh and you can't know in advance. And so, like, I can take away the things that I learned that I didn't know before and abstract those out, but I'm gonna be throwing away useful stuff. Um, to someone else, but the narrative is the narrative. Like that's just what happened to the person, what they saw, what they were thinking. Um, and I like to go back, you know, reasonably far to like the like how the system got into that state, uh, right? The story of of you know what what were the change code changes or config changes, and what was the motivation for them, right? And so you have all of these individual stories and. And they're great, and I just man, I love them. Uh, and like people, people love to read stories. Yeah, uh, they don't like reading. They don't like reading bullets, <laughs> but they love stories, right? Like this whole podcast, right, is predicated on the idea. Yes, to my understanding, that like people love to hear stories about incidents.
1: Oh uh, yeah, that's true. Um, so t- talking about uh, incident stories, uh, you, you've seen a lot at Netflix. Are there any specific stories you could share with us?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you about one that stands out, and I'm I'm gonna like break the rule of like not doing an analysis of your own uh, incident. Cause like I was the, I was the incident responder for this one on core. Uh, and so I did, I didn't even do like a, like a, like a, Deep write up, but I did like a big crazy timeline on it. Um, so this is like the, the 100% tracing incident that I was involved in. So Netflix is a, uh, we have a microservice architecture and there's like a, an edge service, like the front door. The service is called Zool. It's, it's open source. It's on, Net, it's on GitHub. Um, and so all the requests come into Zool and then Zool will tag some of them to trace, right? And we have a distributed tracing thing so we know who's talking to who. Um, We trace normally one out of every 1,000 requests, right? So 0.1% of requests get, get tagged and traced. And that trace data gets like, you know, pushed into our stream processing system. It goes on like a Kafka queue. It gets consumed later on. And, you know, you can visualize it and so on. Uh, so one day the one of the engineers on the Zool team, um, accidentally, he was, he was debugging, um, some kind of tracing issue. So he had it on his local machine running Zool. He had turned the tracing on to 100%. He had switched to another, um, development task and he didn't realize he'd committed that change, uh, the hundred percent change. And so it pushed it up with, with the other change. So he has now pushed up a change where a hundred percent of requests. so like a thousand times more than we normally handle are going to get sampled. Right. Uh, so, so that goes out, goes to canary, right? So canary only takes a fraction of, of traffic, right? And so a hundred percent of that fraction of traffic is getting sampled. Um, the downstream services are fine; they can they can handle that additional tracing. Um, there are some alerts that that fire on the the stream processing side, but they're like they're not critical. They're like they're starting to fall behind because like it's a lot more data is coming in than normal. But they're like not like business critical paging things. They're, they're email alerts and stuff, and this is, happens like a one in the morning. Um, then um it gets promoted to from Canary. So we have like a, a staging sort of thing, right? So first it's canary, and then like we, we run in three different Amazon regions, right? That goes to US East One first. So like 9.30 in the morning, US East this gets deployed to US East One because the Canary looks good, right? And like the Zool itself is fine, right? Like it's it it's always processing our hundred, it's always dealing with all the requests, right? It just happens to be taggy um it, it goes and now all of a sudden in us east 1 100% of requests are, are being tagged and processed all along the thing right so now um all of a sudden uh one of their our error signals spike uh now i it, it didn't set off an alert yet but uh someone on my team happened to see it because um, there was an all-hands meeting going on, and most of the people on my team were sitting in the situation room, and the situation room happens to have all these monitors around it with the dashboards. We don't usually use them for anything, right? Because no one – like, it's just cycling through those dashboards, and he sees these, like – those, like, errors. Like, wait, those are bad, right? Now I'm not in that room. So, so I'm on call. I'm not in that room. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be like remote. Like I want to go actually to where the, the all hands meeting is, yeah. right? So I, I'm in the all hands meeting. They're watching the all hands meeting from the situation room that my, my teammate sees this Paige is the on call who's me. Yeah. So they're watching, they're watching me stand up. They're watching me look at my phone, stand up and then come, come back to the situation room. And, and so, and so what's happened is like a bunch of services are like, you know, the CPU is too high, we're getting weird errors. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weirdly distributed throughout the service. Like, but there's no obvious like change that's happened. Yeah. Um, right? Like there's not one thing you can point to and say, okay, that that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, and so at the same time, in parallel, the observability team is like investigating why their alert went off. That, like, mm-hmm. why why are we behind in processing these traces? And then the team that owns the stream processing infrastructure, right, which is on top which they're built on top of, mm-hmm. their alerts also go off and they're they're trying to figure this out. And so the observability guy um, asks the engineer on Zool, like, who made the change, like, hey, did anything change at <laughs> 1 a.m.? Okay? Because <laughs> at 1 and And he says, he says, no, nothing changed. Oh, wow. Okay. And <laughs> the reason he says that is because when he... So... Zool, the way they push is that they have a scheduled push at four, right? Their canary goes out at 4 PM and he pushed before that. Hmm. He didn't know that at the time someone had manually started that pipeline. And so his request got, his deployment got queued. So his deployment didn't start until one in the morning. And he oh didn't know that. Wow. So he's like, no, I, I pushed yesterday at four. Our, our canaries go out at four, like yeah. one o'clock. That's not us. That's yeah. not, that's not my change. <laughs> right. Um, oh. <laughs> so, so, you know, we don't know what's going on. We're getting, like, TCP retransmit errors. Some people are saying, oh, there's got to be a networking problem. Let's bring in the networking people, right? Yeah. Some people are saying, no, it's not. Just because TCP retransmits are up, that doesn't mean it's a networking issue. Yeah. Um, so the networking guy's coming in. And he's <laughs> like, I don't think it's a networking problem. Um, so you mentioned the Chaos Kong, right? So Netflix is, a, is able to fail over. So I'm like, I don't know if it was my call in the end, but I, I, you know, I was the core on call. So, okay, let's fail out. Uh, let's fill out of US East One, so we we move all the traffic out of US East One to the other two regions, US West Two and mm-hmm. EU. Um, Thirty minutes later, the deployment finishes in <laughs> US East One, and it goes to US West Two. Right? That that's the plant Pipeline still running, yeah. and then I'm like, oh my god, it followed us. Right? The problem has <laughs> followed yeah. us to this new region. Right? And it just was a coincidence that that's the the order in which it was it was the, the stage was happening. Mm-hmm. Now. You know, in parallel, the, the stream processing guys are just investigating their, you know, why are we getting so much more, so much more, you know, traffic in our Kafka queues. Um, and then another person on my team... Sees that in the, you know, the stream processing infrastructure channel, they report like, Hey, you know, we're having an issue, mm. right? Like they don't, they don't show up in the core channel because they're not really critical stuff, right? They're mm. like operational data. Like it doesn't, if the Kafka stuff breaks, it doesn't affect streaming. Yeah. But one of the core members sees that. It's like, Hey, when did you start to see that happen? Right? Mm. Like what was the timing behind that? And oh, that happened at the same time as we started <laughs> to see it back And then they put it, and then those streams come together, mm. right? And then we realize what's happened yeah. and they observe, the guy on the observability you know, turns out, turns down the uh, the the tracing, and everything goes back to normal, right? And so, I, I love this story so much. Um, because it has all these combinations of like things people didn't know and then things people did know because they saw certain things right yeah. uh, and and so much of incidents are like that are like these huge systems they're all there's so many interactions like no one has the whole picture and we're always going to be missing some some critical piece yeah. and but some people are going to get good at looking and saying hey that's important right like hey those errors are, are they were a real thing hey like that that issue that this you know stream processing team is having like maybe <laughs> that's connected right like yeah uh and and so i you know I really love that that uh that incident
1: oh that 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 that's an amazing story and wow it sounds it sounds like a tough day to be on call when when you are facing with such an when you're faced with such an incident uh, go ahead,
0: yeah. I was going to say, so I thought going in that, like, it would be much more stressful if, like, all of a sudden streaming, you know, video watching drops to zero, Mm. right? But that's not the stressful part. The stressful ones are the ones that take, like, hours and hours. You don't know what the problem is. It's sort of something's maybe wrong. And then it goes away. And, like, is everything okay? Can we, like, walk away now? Like, we don't know, like, if we're in a good state because we don't know why we were in a bad state. And, okay, we're fine. And then it recurs, like, four hours later. Man, I can tell you about, like like cassandra clusters you know getting too hot like oh my god uh interactions between client libraries and and like the way the data is distributed and it's just oh those are the ones that are a nightmare like saturday all day oh those are a nightmare
1: oh yeah i think whenever an incident happen happens and it suddenly goes away uh i've seen some people like oh it went away but i see other half of the room goes like wait a second we don't know why it went away. So we don't, <laughs> like, uh, we, we, we don't know when it's gonna come back again. And oh it's Friday. <laughs> and you know you will come back. And, and you know it will come back, but you just don't know when. uh that's interesting. So uh this this part that you mentioned where people have different perspectives and different information that they're seeing and they're making decisions accordingly. Um uh, and it's fascinating when you combine all those views together. Um, like you, you know exactly why something happened and what happened and eventually how you can fix it. Uh, you you write, uh, you, you have an amazing blog, uh, surfingcomplexity.com. If people haven't read it, I would highly recommend. Uh, your, your fascination with incidents, at least uh, I could gather your fascination with incidents from your blog itself because you have so many posts talking about uh, incidents in general, but not just from a software or just a technical standpoint there is this perspective of humans too uh, so, so i was curious like h- how did you develop that perspective uh where where you're not just thinking about like oh this is software and why it broke but all the human aspects involved
0: yeah i i've been interested in the human aspects of of software engineering in general for a while i mean like like i said a little bit like that's like what my phd research was about like Software engineering and like studying people, but in terms of like humans as being part of the system, like the operational system, that was more like I would say that John Allspaw like dragged me into that world. Like all the like, I, I'm sure you've you've you know seen many references to his stuff. Like eventually, I was like, all right, John, like you're constantly posting about this stuff. I'm gonna start reading about it, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> enough, <laughs> and I started reading about it, and I got completely sucked in. And like this world, like so a lot of the that sort of thinking is around that like resilience engineering, cognitive systems engineering, there's this sort of history of, of research into this area. Um, and so the cognitive system engineering people, they talk about a, a joint cognitive system, like a system that's composed of both the, the, technical stuff the software in our world and the people and that's all one single system you'll, you'll often hear people talk about social socio-technical system right so the system is not just the software it's the software and the people together um right and they're doing something together in a way right um and that just like over time like that just got under my skin and like i just couldn't stop seeing it anymore and so now i i always see the world that way and a lot of people don't like our Culture or our technical culture separates that out, right? Like there's the technical stuff, right? Like you give me, you give me the requirements and like the constraints, and I will like build that thing for you and we'll make trade-offs, right? But like technically, you know, I think it's just a cause and effect. And and everyone thinks that way in technical worlds. It's not just software people, all the engineers do, but like to step back and see the people involved as part of the system, like you just see things that you wouldn't have seen before, even though you're seeing the same, th- right? We're seeing the same world, right? But it's just from a different point of view. And there's just there's just so much there, right? That like it gives me so much stuff to write about um, because people can connect because they've seen it personally, but they just might not have, have thought about it from that point of view. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Uh, and to, to that, I think uh, one of your recent posts was about uh, what, what identifies as, or what can you put down as a root cause? And there were a few things which, when i first read i remember just sending it to guang right away i was like well we're gonna have so much fun in this conversation <laughs> uh like one of the things that you mentioned was like well prioritization for instance was one where you can like you mentioned earlier the seed for an incident incident was planted much earlier in the process where we knew it was a ticking bomb we just didn't prioritize it uh or like the other one was power dynamics for instance which is fascinating uh, is is your study in the socio-technical system is that where this perspective comes from
0: yeah, absolutely. So the the prioritization I love because I cannot tell you how many incidents I have seen where one of the contributing factors was some kind of like vulnerability in the system that that people knew about and were working on, but they had not completed that work yet, right? Like we knew this was a problem, we were going to address it, or we're, we're in the process, maybe in a few months it would have been released or something, but we had other priorities, right? And the problem is like, you don't know the next thing that's going to break you, right? Like you always have have more work that you can possibly do than like like time to do it in. and so you can't you don't know what what thing is going to bite you uh and so this that that happens again and again and again but it's very easy to say well why didn't you fix that well like i had a million other things well i'm gonna give you some more work to do right <laughs> yeah. like so 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 that's that um the power dynamics um i, I started think about more and more because i read more and more about like sort of sociological studies um of technical organizations. And I, I found those really really interesting because uh things like who gets to define like what the problem is that we're trying to solve, right? Like what are the problem what are the problems in the, in this doc? Or like who gets the like I said the, who gets the head count, right? Like that these are and like we power dynamics or like like politics sounds like negative, right? But like we live in we function in social organizations, right? Like this is how things get done. And and like, it's just, it's a reality. It's just as constraining as like, I don't know, big O notation or, or, <laughs> or like the cap theorem, right? Like this is just yeah. how people interact. We, we negotiate, we have our own perspectives, right? Like different people in different parts of the stack, like they care about, they see different things, they care about different things and they're going to advocate for the things they see from their perspectives. And that's just how people get stuff done in groups. Uh And like there's this belief that, like, there's the technical stuff, which is the good stuff that we should be doing. And then there's, like, the politics stuff, which is, like, my company is broken. And, like, these things happen because of politics, not because of technical decisions. But, like, that, what you call politics, like, that's engineering work, too. It's just, like, you just don't see it that way because you don't realize, like, how human beings actually get work done together in organizations. Uh, I got pushback for power dynamics from people. Like, no, it's not power dynamics. Like, they should have just like, ask for more, they should have been able to justify more headcount. And I'm like, well, every team can justify more headcount. There's only so many resources, right? Like, this is why I talked about, like, like, rhetoric, right? Like, you need to be able to, like, figure out how to advocate for the things you think are important, uh, right? And you need to be able to do it in technical language, like, not, like, people hear rhetoric, and they think, like, oh, I'm trying to, like, like, sell you something, right? Like, it's, 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 Negative. It's, it's like, I'm trying to fool you. I'm trying to like manipulate you, but, but I mean rhetoric in, in other sense of like, I am trying to like persuade you of something. Like I'm, tr- I have a position and I want to, to be able to communicate it to you in a way that you'll, you'll believe me. And the way we do that in our field is we write technical documents where they read as if, Oh, this is the way it works. this is the way the world is, right? Like, even though you've chosen the problems to describe and how you're going to sol- solve them, like that's a, that's a political, Thing you've done by describing these are problems i'm mentioning and you're not mentioning these other ones that's going to that that goes into input into people upper up in upper management and they're going to use that to make decisions about about things like headcount and what to invest in uh and if you see that then you're going to be more successful in an organization and getting big stuff done that you want to do yeah
1: no that th- that makes so much sense um, so There is so much to unpack here. Uh, I I have so many questions to ask, but I I know we're running out of time. So uh, I'll ask you this. Rhetoric, uh, I saw this tweet where you mentioned that engineering and CS degrees should have a course in rhetoric, which uh, if I think about makes so much sense uh, for all the reasons you just mentioned, for people who, let's say, for instance, are still trying to figure out how do I convince people of an idea that I have? And it could be, here's a technical design or here's an idea or an initiative that I want to propose. Not everyone is... I don't think it's a level playing field because I think engineers, at least when they're starting out, technical skills are a lot more emphasized on as opposed to some of these, uh, for the lack of a better word, soft skills. So uh, how do you think people can develop this uh, rhetoric or just write persuasively or even speak in meetings when they have these discussions?
0: Yeah, I'm... Fortunate that I have an academic background where you kind of have to speak and write a lot. I mean, there's just like we're forced to. Like you can't you can't get a PhD through a PhD without writing a lot uh, of technical stuff to try to convince people of things and and going and get, and giving talks. So I mean, I could I could say very flippantly like get a PhD, but I would not actually recommend that for someone unless they really really, really <laughs> want to do that because like that is like. That is not cost effective. Like, you're going to make a lot more money with those, like, four to six years working instead. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say, and it depends, right? Like, in, in a smaller company, it's not as important, right? In a larger, like, it really, like, in a startup, uh, for example, like, a lot of it is, is really spoken. Like, you, you, get everyone gets on the same page by talking and you can, you can get things done just by talking to your teammates, right? And that's how people do things on their own teams, right? Um, it's only when things get bigger, uh, in larger organizations that you have to rely much more on, on writing, right? On like, you, like, like startups are not memo driven cultures in the way that, that large organizations are. Um, so if you want to work at a large organization, you want to succeed. Um, like, you know, advance that way. I, one thing I'd recommend is like, you know, reading. So first read a lot. Like I, I, like I just read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, I just really, uh, enjoy reading nonfiction. So it's easy for me to do, to recommend. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly reading something. Uh, and that, like, that's one way to get better at something, at least appreciating when it's good, right? Is to read a lot. Um, the writing is interesting because it's really, hard to write if you're not interested in something and so the the challenge with practicing writing like I've I've never been able to like do like journaling for example I, I just doesn't I don't know what to write when I have journal um, yeah I empathize with that but <laughs> <laughs> my wife disagrees but <laughs> I empathize with that <laughs> I I I just I I try over and over again. On the other hand, when I read a lot of of like the resilience engineering stuff, right? Like there's all these different ideas that I get exposed to that I like. I think I understand. I'm not 100% sure. And so I use my blog as sort of a thinking out loud. Uh, thing, right? Like I, my blog is, those ideas are not super sophisticated. It's always very short, you know, like a couple of minutes of reading. Um, and I use it to think out loud to see like, do I really understand this? If I do, then I can describe it in my own words. Right. And so you need a volume of, of ideas, um, that you care enough about that you want to write something about. Um, and so once, once you've got that, once you you're exposing yourself to ideas that you think, personally think are interesting enough to write about um then you just have to sort of work up the courage to like write in public about i mean you could write in in a journal for that stuff i mean i i feel like blogs people have permission to just like similar to podcasts right like they're not super polished right we, we talk off the cuff i'm sure i've said ridiculous things but people don't really care that much right like it's ephemeral uh and so and like Twitter, you, you know, I, I've used Twitter for that, but it's not a good idea. Um, to use Twitter, to use Twitter to like, to have like half fake thoughts. It's just not, it's not the yeah. right environment. It's too easy to do, but it's, it's not the right environment for that. Um, but blogging is, is great for that. Um, and so sometimes, you know, I have no new ideas. I won't write anything for, you know, weeks. And sometimes I'll write like two posts in a day. Um, I, Another thing I do, so I'm a big fan of uh, what's called like ubiquitous capture where like I carry index cards around with me and if I have an idea I you know write it down and go over it later. Um that's like from Getting Things Done. Uh so I'm a big Getting Things Done fan. Um there's another there's um a book I really like, which I read many years ago and then I bought again recently. Uh I actually have it on my bookshelf here. It's called uh Weinberg on Writing, The Fieldstone Method. Um it's by a guy named Gerald Weinberg Gerald Weinberg, he wrote a book called, like, The Psychology of Computer Programming back in, like, I want to say, like, the 70s or 80s, but he's written, like, I don't know, 30 books or something, um, and he has a great uh, description of, like, how to sort of collect these ideas um, as you go, like, so that you can accumulate these th- sorts of things, um, and I find I find his book, it's my favorite book on, like, how to become a better writer, but just, like, how to come up with ideas for stuff to write about, um, because if you don't have anything that you care about, then... It doesn't matter. You're not really going to be able to write, I don't think.
1: Yeah, that, that's really good advice. Uh, do, do you have any other books that you would recommend to folks, uh, either on writing or something that you've just read and you, you thought uh, at least folks in this industry could just learn from?
0: Yeah, a, a book that I've, two books that I've read recently that have had a lot big influence on me. Um, one is called Designing Engineers, um by uh, Louis Bucciarelli, I think his last name is. So it was written by uh, an MIT professor of engineering who did an ethnographic study of engineers. He went into a bunch of different engineering companies and just, like, watched them do design work. Uh, and it's a really great book because, like, it had a lot of influence on me and, like, the role of, like, the social process in design. And he goes and sits there, and he sees, like, they're arguing in like there's this meeting where this this engineer wants to like okay here's like the possible solutions to this technical problem we have right now we're going to go through this process to figure out like how to rank them and then they all start arguing over like no like what's the actual like what should we actually care about like you know we haven't even defined the problem really yet and he's like oh that meeting was a total waste but actually like the the, the research was like well no like people like didn't have like a shared understanding of the, of the problem and like you were developing that as you were talking uh so he saw it as a total waste the the guy who ran the meeting who wanted like a 14 you know to rank order the 14 possible solutions. So I love that book because, like, you know, whether or not you think that software engineers are engineers, when you read that stuff and he says, like, naming is part of design and naming is really hard, and like he's <laughs> like, well, that sounds pretty familiar to me. Like, <laughs> and he's talking about mechanical engineers. Um, the other one I read recently is a, called uh, Mission Improbable by an author named Lee Clark. And he talks about – he's a, he wrote about – like disaster recovery documents for situations that like no one could actually know how to recover from them. So things like what happens after a nuclear war or like how do we like what do people do in that situation or what happens after a nuclear meltdown or, or like a, a huge oil spill. And the conclusion is that like, you know, well, we don't actually know. We don't have experience with these things, but they're written as if they know so that the expert like they have like symbolic value to convince people that like we understand this problem, don't worry about it and, and and that's that has like influenced me a lot on the on the rhetorical point because it's it's written in like technical language by experts Says so, like this is what would happen like this is how we would evacuate long island if like there was a you know a nuclear meltdown there at the power plant uh and, and just that that notion of like you know power dynamics being cloaked in technical writing uh had, had a lot of influence on me and that's that's one of the reasons why you keep seeing me talk about this sort of stuff
1: I see. Uh, we will we'll definitely uh, link to both of these books in the show notes.
0: What's what
2: I find super interesting about this conversation, right, is that. I feel like when I think about these sort of things, right? It's like a lot of engineers I think tend to focus on just like the technical aspect, but then there's this whole sort of um, <laughs> uh, gap between sort of what they actually see the results versus sort of. And I think a lot of times it's very comforting to just focus on the technical stuff because that's what you know well. It's very easy to measure, right? Like it's like oh, I build out these many features, you know what 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 happens? But what you really like to focus on are the things that are harder to measure. But a lot of times that's sort of... And because a lot of times, right, like you, you hear, I don't know, I hear complaints from my like, friends who are engineering or who are in engineering who are like, yo, why is this not working out, right? Like I've done, you know, all this stuff. But what they're not looking at is that sort of that gap, right? And I think kind of translating from what you just talked about in terms of, you know, how you look at incidents and uh, writing and rhetorics, translating that to uh, metrics. So you, you've wrote about this... Um, article kind of preferring sort of qualitative signals over uh quantitative i thought that was super interesting read um if you can just like provide a little bit of context in terms of like a tldr on the on the post uh that would be that would be super great
0: yeah so so um man we love metrics don't we and uh the (laughs) reason more numbers and and to be fair to management right like our systems, like as an organization, is they're really big, right? And like, even if if like if you're a director or a VP and you're you can spend all your time doing one-on-ones with people, and you're still like it, not going to see everything that's going on, right? And and metrics make the system intelligible. I can understand, right? I, c- I can manage that system because like I have this number and I can see it going up or down, even though there's this huge thing with all sorts of different different people. So I I understand like the the appeal of metrics because it, it makes like the management problem tractable. Right. So, so that, that's attractive. And like we engineers like metrics. I mean, I'll tell you, I use metrics for like alerting on my system, right? (laughs) Like my system, my software, I'm not doing qualitative analysis. I mean, I do logs, I do qualitative, but like, (laughs) no, in that case, like I put, I, I can put good metrics in, but if you want to really, so what I found is if you want to actually, get as much as you can from the system like so a couple of things so one is that like metrics necessarily are throwing out a lot of information right that like that that's what they do right we collapse the world into like a few things which means you're going to miss a lot of stuff right there's and and i'm always worried about all the stuff that we are missing because that the stuff that the organization doesn't see that's where the danger is that's the stuff that doesn't get the resources that's the stuff where like if you're not measuring burnout Ooh, like, and your people start to burn out, like, you're, but you're measuring attrition, like, uh, like, you know, you're, you're too late, right? Like, you do not want to get people into that death spiral. So, so I am always worried about the signals that are not, not measured with metrics. So, like, like, no matter how many metrics you add for me, I'm going to be like, well, well, what are you not seeing, right? And, and, the other thing that I, I personally find very frustrating about metrics, so um, whenever you're dealing with metrics, so like, you know, on, on the core team, you have to measure like, when does the incident start and stop, right? And like, what category does it go into, right? Like that time that you spend, like, okay, the the metric like dropped to here at this minute and then there to this minute, where should we say it start? Like, there's no value to the organization in that time you spend, like picking which minute it started at or like okay is this like a latent bug or is this a recent one like it's an interaction of two things is it because of like I I don't know like this external service right like you are that time you spend to figure out what bucket to put something in that is all waste right like you're not learning anything right There's, there's you're not that that's all opportunity cost but if you are doing qualitative analysis if you are learning more about the system you're talking, like, how did we get it? Like, how did this happen? Right? Like, you are going to, you, there's a, there's always an opportunity for you to see something, to learn something about the system that you didn't know before. Now, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll spend a lot of time and, and you won't get anything. Right? It's possible. I mean, I, I've always learned something from, from all the qualitative analysis I've done on incidents. And, and one of the things you get better at is like, Given you have a, f- a limited amount of time, you know, you got to pick the, the, the stuff that seems like it's most promising, right? Like based on like your intuition and, and your hints. But like, like my, I feel like never feel like my time is wasted when I'm doing quality of analysis. I'm always learning more about a system and every like incident and surprise is like an indication there's something about your system that you didn't know that was really important, right? But like metrics, like the collection of the metrics itself, that, that work there's no learning and the the insight that you get from the metrics i've always found that any insight you can get from quantitative metrics you can get more insight from qualitative with the same amount of work right so that's like my that's my my like claim right so that's why i think qualitative is better than quantitative is that any any effort you spend on quantitative metrics i think you would get like more insight if that's what you care about you get more insight if you spent that time doing qualitative instead and you're not going to annoy your engineers at like you know having them spend time, you know, doing arbitrary bucketing. And then you also don't have the horrible, you know, I'm not even talking about like the effect where like people like, you know, do things to make the metrics look good. Right? Oh, that's, that's another problem. <laughs> like already. Right. And like, you hear this, like, at, at you know, different places where they're like chasing, chasing metrics instead of doing with like anytime my, my favorite metric is like, how many times did someone have to make a decision between doing what they felt was right and doing what they were or, or doing, what would increase the metric, right? Like, like that's, that's, the, that's a metric I, I would like to see. Cause every time that happens, that's bad. And that should be zero. And it never is. Uh, but qualitative, the, the, you don't have that problem because it's all based on judgment.
2: And talking about judgment, like I feel like I, in, in theory, I definitely agree with what you said. Um, but I feel like, you know it's hard to apply that to like every company so do you think like the sort of the Netflix culture of having like resp- uh, freedom and responsibility being like a very much a necessary condition for you know for those to thrive such that you're giving individual engineers sort of the trust and you know to kind of um, do the right thing here
0: yeah absolutely i mean i really think that like you need to have this is and this is like one of the I don't know, like, tenets of resilience engineering. Like, the people who, like, the op, the people, they call it the sharp end, the people who are, like, actually, like, on the front lines, like, they need to have initiative. They need to be able to make decisions in the moment about what to do, right? And so you have to be able to trust their judgment because if you, like, centralize that, if you have to, like, has to go up the chain to get it, you know, and it has to come back down, it's you're going to be too slow, and they're going to miss things, right? And, and so I would say it's not even sufficient, but it's necessary. And, and one of the things I love about Netflix is that, the engineers do have a lot of like initiative and autonomy. And like the the guidelines are use your ju- use your best judgment, right? Like what, what do you think is best for Netflix? That's what you should do. Now, you know, different people on different teams will, will disagree on what's best, right? <laughs> and so one of the like, wait, there are lots of cat herding challenges when we don't have like like mandates on things. But I, I really do think that like people having initiative and and you letting people use their best judgment about what to do. Is is super important to be able to to use these sorts of approaches?
2: And maybe a follow up that might not have a great answer to, but I was still curious to get your thoughts on is like for someone say like an IC working at a company, maybe the culture is not as strong in that regard, uh, where there are a lot of hoops. Like, are there any actionable sort of tips that you have that they can sort of? Either try to drive the change in terms of culture, but if that's too hard, anything that it can do sort of um, to make a small change for the better.
0: Yeah, I, I've never worked in a company like that. I can I can <laughs> say what I would try I, I, I can say what I would try to do. Uh, I don't know if it will be successful or not, but w- what I would try to do is sort of guerrilla style, like on the side, do some like lead-by-example stuff with like so one thing that I, I try to do on my team is write up when we have operational surprises, um whether I'm involved or not. Um I don't often I don't have enough time, so it doesn't happen. But like if to say like look, like I'm doing like this sort of work, uh and here's the value, right? And like you either see the value or you don't, right? And some people won't see the value. um, And so you sort of have to like like infect people. You've got to get like people sort of higher up to see value in this work. So you've got to do a little bit of it um, and have them see it. And then you know maybe they'll either go along or, or not. Um, that might not work. In many cases, it probably won't. But at least, like, you know, it's one thing to sort of say, like, look, you know, we really should do this. Um, but it's another thing to actually try to carve out some time, do it yourself and show them and, and, and get, like, sort of create demand for it by, by trying to sort of on the side, uh, do it, do it yourself. Now, like, I was doing stuff on the side and then I was like, no, I don't want to do it on the side anymore. Uh, so, um, you know, but on the other hand, I, I was able to make space for, for that when I, you know, I, I think like that work that I did helped me make space for, for, you know, moving on to the core team and, and, and doing that. But I had like a sponsor. I had someone on that team who was an IC who became the manager who just really believed in that work. Um, and I think part of it was he saw the work I was doing, but part of it was that he was like, I'll say like a humanist. Like he saw the human, human's parts. And so, like, a huge factor in whether this succeeds or fails is like your management change. So there's like organizational culture, but like in big companies, like the, the culture is also very, very local, right? Like individual teams, I can tell you, having been on three teams at Netflix, individual team cultures are very different. Um, and so, you know, you can sort of either change your team or change your team, you know, like you can. <laughs> Damn, um, that's a good call. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's actually mine, but like you can sort of convince people uh, or not. Uh, <laughs> Makes sense
1: uh, in, in this case. So I think the 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 one that you referred to, or the initiative that you took about talking about the near misses. I think "Oops" is the project that you named. Okay, that that's an that's a good name. Uh, with with the qualitative analysis uh, and something like the "Oops" project, where people are talking about some of the near misses that happened, which didn't result into an incident, but someone caught it one way or the other, someone in the system very well, or there was a signal that told them it's going to blow up. Uh, And I'm going to try and tie it back to the recent post we discussed earlier, which was about some of the interesting root causes that could be mentioned on incidents. Have you been able to convince the core team or other teams at Netflix to use any one of those as a root cause in an incident, where it's like a prioritization (laughs) becomes one?
0: (laughs) So... I mean, it depends on who's doing the incident right. I mean, we, we, we don't have like a, like a canned list of, 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 you know, I mean, we don't call them root causes, right? Contributing yeah, factors is the fine. term, yes. is the term that we use. Um, I have never seen power dynamics as a contributing factor. I don't, I don't think I could even put it there. Like, <laughs> I don't think I could put it there, right? Like, you know, I, uh, so I, I don't think prioritization, like, what I, what I have put is, Like, you know, this work was being done, right? So, like, this, the the, the work that would have prevented this if it had gotten done yet was still in progress, right? So that doesn't – I don't think I might not have labeled it prioritization, but at least try to describe it. Um, So that goes a little bit to, like, bucketing. Like, I try to, like – here's a description of of what it was. The hard part then becomes, like, how do you aggregate across a bunch of different ones, right? So you have a bunch of different – Different incident write-ups. Okay. Like, what do I do with that? Right? Like, you, you can't just hand management. Here's like, you know, here's 30, 20 page write-ups. Like, (laughs) you know, now figure out like, you know, where to, where to invest in like reducing risk. Right? Like, that, that's not, that's terrible. Like, they're going to say go away. Like, why are you wasting my time? Um, so like doing that thematic analysis, though, is hard. Uh, we, so, and I was doing this with, with a a teammate with, um, Ryan Kitchens, who's still on the core team. And then like COVID hit. And like, it it just fell down. But like, we had categories, like themes, like something somebody didn't know. It's one of my favorite ones, right? Like, there's like some piece of context that's not shared between two different people in the organization. And so that's a, that's a common, uh, you know, contributor to, to incidents. Um. But I mean, think it's sort of like the, the, the next step. And it's, it's just very difficult to do because of like, you know, who, who gets to pick those categories? How do you, you know, and like, but like being able to do that, that, yeah, like, yeah, I would not, I would not put power dynamics <laughs> <laughs> uh, myself, uh, because, you know, and then what do you even do with that? Right. Like I, you could put that on every incident, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, I, I don't, it's, it's a fact of life. I mean, maybe that would help. I see see the value of of you know the role of, of things like you know docs and stuff, but
1: I don't know. No, that makes sense. Uh, so you you were on the core team. Uh, thank, thanks for being there. Thanks for running Netflix for us. We you you have two happy customers here. Uh, whose and your your streaming viewership went up, I'm assuming significantly due to their circumstances today with COVID and all. Uh, But you've moved on to a different team now towards the managed delivery team. Uh, Before we close, do you want to share what you are doing on the managed delivery team?
0: Yeah, I'm really a traditional software engineer on the managed delivery team. Uh, So I don't have any, you know, particularly, you know, interesting role there. Like, I'm just one of the software engineers. Because because I'm more operationally minded uh, on the team, I... You know, do a little bit more stuff with like the alerts and dashboards. I run the, we have like a this week in managed delivery operations meeting where we talk about like, what, what are the interesting things that happened this week in operations? And like, how did you figure out what the problem was? And like, sort of like, you could think of it as being very sort of lightweight versions of like incident write ups where we're just talking in a meeting. Um, if there's something interesting that happened. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to you know like upskill like everyone on the team on on uh the operation stuff and make that make that sort of work more visible um but i you know i, I switched onto that team because i thought that the problem space of like increasing the automation in the delivery system was like really interesting and like i can imagine all sorts of crazy things going wrong um with automation like i i don't know if i'm an automation skeptic but i i definitely appreciate that like as you increase automation and as you add safety stuff like it gets weirder the failure modes um and i am i am a little like so one of the trends we're seeing at netflix is that like we're we're trying to provide higher level abstractions to the to the app app owners which means that they're going to be in some level responsible for less operations work and that scares me a little bit uh and so i want to figure out like how do we build automation in a way to make like to surface some of the, the operation stuff to them to make it more visible so that like we don't just end up as a magic black box where something goes wrong nobody knows like what the heck is going on right like that's always the danger that like when it works it's great and when it doesn't like i don't know how this thing works (laughs) i don't know what it's doing why it's been eight minutes why isn't this thing deploying yet restart it didn't um, work again (laughs) right uh so i just thought it was a really interesting space to be in so
1: makes sense and by the way this managed delivery is this more like on software delivery or this is more content delivery
0: Software delivery. So this is deployment. So you can think of this as like, like a a replacement for like a traditional like pipeline based system where you're like describing like here are my environments i've got a testing environment a staging and a prod and like to go from test to staging these tests have to run and then to go from like here to here like you do you have to do like a manual judgment or you could like say okay i want to pin back to this version and it'll figure out you know i want to mark i mark this version as bad it'll figure automatically which one to pin back to um so like you know treating the traditionally like pipelines you can think of them like you know, like sort of the equivalent of like bash scripts for like how deployments go. And here it's more like a, a, like a real software system, like understanding the, the domain more about like how the code flows through the different environments. Um, so, I mean, we'll see. It's like, it's sort of an experimenty thing. Yeah, sounds fun. Yeah.
1: So we, we, we're coming to the close. Uh, and this is one question we like to ask everyone. Uh, and we would love to get your answer for this one. Uh, like, what was the tool that you recently discovered in Light?
0: I've become a really big fan of Rome research. Oh. Uh, so so I don't know if uh, people are familiar with this. It's like, if you look at it, you're like, oh, it's like an outliner and a wiki. Big deal. Uh, that's not very interesting. <laughs> um, but like that combination of with like a wiki with like backlinks, right? Okay, it's an outliner and a wiki with backlinks. But the, so I read this like how to take smart notes book about, like, I don't know if, you, if you, that book's sort of been going around about, like, Zettelkasten. and there's this whole world of people who, like, accumulate, like, ideas on index cards and stuff and, and use them. But basically, it's a tool that, that I find very useful for organizing, like, my thoughts. Um, like, I really like outliners, and, like, the outliner wiki combination just works really, really well. There's this, like, entire, like, subculture of people who, like, are super into it and, like, have... I don't use the extensions, but they put all sorts of extensions in there. But um, I really, really like Roam Research, and, like, I've stuck with it in a way that I have not stuck with other tools for, like, keeping track of things, and so I would, I would recommend people check it out.
1: Oh, that's pretty neat. Uh, it also creates these graphs ba- and connections based on all the ideas you put in, right?
0: <laughs> it does that. I, I don't really use that very often. It's kind of a novelty, I think, but it does do that. Yeah.
2: Um, and it's R-O-A-M, Roam research
0: yeah cool cool cool.
2: at first i thought like roam the city and i thought it was going to be like an art no. thing i was like oh, okay. no no <laughs> sorry. sorry for being a peasant uh please continue
0: uh, uh, sorry. No, no, just... it's okay
1: uh so lauren is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners today
0: yeah so if anyone's sort of interested in in the human aspects of, of learning from incidents and learning more about them. There's this great website called uh, learning from incidents and software. It's at uh, learning from incidents.io. Uh, it's sort of like a community of, of people who are similarly minded and are trying to move away from, you know, sort of simple like metric approaches to incidents to more like the narrative and like, how do we learn more about like what happened? Uh, so I, I, definitely encourage you to check it out
1: awesome yeah we'll sh- certainly link to it in the show notes as well uh it was learning from yeah awesome uh by the way i, I saw some I, I remember going through this website and there were some familiar names in uh on, on the page in the about page i think john Alspar, nora jones yourself and a few others
0: yep um Yeah, so um, Richard Cook, Jessica DeVito, Will Gallego, um, Ryan Kitchens, Laura McGuire, those are all people in this community. Nice. Um, That's awesome. We'll we'll certainly recommend
1: all our listeners to check it out. So, Lauren, before we let you go, one last question. I I said that the other one was going to be the last one. Uh, But but you you have on your shirt, should I deploy on a Friday at 5 p.m.? Uh, What's the answer to that? We we, we, we (laughs) got to answer that. (laughs)
0: So, uh, so have you seen Oh, my, there's uh, a flowchart. Of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a flowchart.
2: Um, for oh. our uh, audience who are not seeing
0: this, I think the safe <laughs> answer is no. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and you know, like I, I wear this shirt every single Friday. And I will say you know it, it's everyone who lo- so there are people who love to fight over this on the internet right yes. uh, but every, everyone who has seen my shirt at Netflix loves my shirt uh, even people who deploy on Friday afternoons especially people who pl- I, I, you know, <laughs> I have deployed I have deployed Friday afternoon wearing this shirt so I, I just I think it's hilarious uh, I, I just love no, it
1: that's, that's a good shirt I think we all need to get one uh, it, uh, th- th- <laughs> okay. this has been awesome Lauren thank you so much for taking the time with us yeah I had a lot awesome. of fun Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.